Well, good morning. Wonderful to be with you today. This morning we just have one question. One question. How do we close the gap? What's our strategy for closing the gap? And no, I don't mean, I don't mean the 90s fast fashion store that also owns Old Navy that couldn't survive at the Columbia Mall. We already did that. We closed that. The gap. How do we close it? What's your strategy for closing the gap? What gap, might you ask? I'm very glad you asked. Thank you. Our strategy for closing the gap, the gap that exists between what we genuinely believe and how we live. If we're honest, there is a gap for all of us in genuinely held convictions, beliefs, and our Monday through Friday boots on the ground, how we live. What do gaps look like? For the student, there may be a genuinely held value that I want to befriend people who are outcasts, who don't feel like they belong. So in your first block, you befriend an outcast. Kid who's different, smells funny. Kid whose interests aren't mainstream, and you're genuine. You're really kind, they're a genuine friend. You don't feel like you're doing a project, it's your friend. But then in your next block, you have other friends, and now there's distance between you and that kid. That's a gap. I have a friend who has a gap. He grew up in like literally fundamentalist Christian environments. Like that was a name they used for themselves. And you know, the three evils in the world were sex, drugs, and rock and roll. He got off on his own and he realized, like, oh, some of these things that I was told were bad are just a matter of maybe maturity, taste, personal conviction. I don't think I'm going to hell because I listen to Bob Dylan. He started pushing that further. Maybe alcohol. Maybe that's a wisdom issue and a personal conviction. And so he got really like, okay, I think there's freedom in Christ. I'm going to be wise. I'm not going to drink around people who are sober. I don't want to put a stumbling block in people's way. I want to be loving my neighbor. But I think I have freedom in Christ to do this. So when you go to his apartment, it honestly, my 30-year-old friend, it looked like a college student. I mean, there was just Miller Lite and everywhere. <clears throat> but then... His parents came to visit, and we were neighbors, and I get a knock on the door. I need to hide my alcohol here. Mom and dad are coming. Oh, that's a gap. What about the person who teaches a personal finance class? Personal finance class in their city. And they're very harsh. You know the reason... Your money is out of control because you don't have that B word. Budget. The budget! That was risky, actually, in hindsight. <laughs> Whew, thank you. You don't have a budget. Get on a budget. And they finger wag about a budget. Little do you know, though, that person is teaching that class. Why? Well, because they've maxed out their credit cards trying to keep their adult daughter who lives in Chicago happy. They're buying things they can't afford, so they need extra income, so they're teaching this personal finance class. 
but you can't get it together. That's a gap. Should we keep going? Do we understand gaps? How about this gap? How about this gap? I'm not everybody, but there are some of a certain generation that look at young folks, and like this generation. This generation, they're so impersonal. They're always on their phones. You're like, yeah. And then you go to their house, and their television is on 24-7. No one's watching Wheel of Fortune, but it's on. That's a gap. Between deeply held convictions. Everett, we deeply value connection. We deeply value moving toward people. But then there are times when our behavior doesn't reflect that. We call that a gap. That's a gap. There's two types of gaps. We can call one an implicit gap. An implicit gap is there's a gap and we don't know it. We're just not aware. You may call those blind spots. We may call that just like growth edges. But when there's a gap between our convictions and how we live, we're just not aware about it. We all have those. I have those. You have those. Everybody, everybody, everybody alive and living on planet Earth qualifies for those type of gaps. There's another type of gap, though. These are explicit gaps. These are when there's a gap we know and we actively choose to ignore. Those gaps can be very dangerous. When there is a gap between our convictions and how we live and we know and we don't do anything about it. Which all of this begs the question, what's our strategy for closing the gap? It's very easy to recognize gaps. Once we recognize it, what's our strategy for closing the gap? That makes all the difference in the world, how we close the gap. We're in a series where we have been talking about characteristics of maturing disciples. At Compass Church, we focus on eight characteristics of maturing disciples. There are way more than eight. We just can't do everything. So we're saying, hey, if you're going to do spiritual formation here, here's eight things that we focus on. Other churches focus on other things, and that's great. That's how God's wired them. We focus on these things. This is what we're all trying to grow in. We've talked about empowering. That's how we kick this off. Disciples empower other people. We don't overpower other people. That totally lays the foundation for how we interact in the world. We've talked about ownership. That God has put things in our hands, and how do we take ownership of that. Steward what he's entrusted to us. This week what we're talking about is almost the most foundational. The most foundational characteristic of a maturing disciple is this idea of integrity. Integrity. You can define integrity as being whole or undivided. In many ways, uh, this is the point of discipleship. The word integrated and integrity come from the same word. We want to integrate the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus we've received into every part of our lives. This is a really big deal for disciples of Jesus. In Psalm 119, when the psalmist opens up this beautiful meditation on God's word, he literally says this, how well life goes. You may be familiar, it may say in your translation, blessed are. How well life goes for those whose life is integrated, who walk in in the instruction of Yahweh. 
We experience flourishing when we close the gaps. The great Dallas Willard once said, Life is painful, but we get to pick what pain we want. It is painful when we have values and we don't live out of them. That's painful. It is also painful bringing the gaps into the light. Think, man, here's where, here's where I need growth. Here's where I'm falling short. That's also painful. We get to pick the pain, though. Do we want to stay in the gap? Or do we want to work to close the gap? I'm always hesitant, from my perspective, to give, like, strongly worded sermons of, like, hey, we're talking about hypocrisy. All right, are you a hypocrite? The reason I'm hesitant to do that is because we're not really great at self-assessment. My concern is that the people who have explicit gaps, who really need to hear a talk on closing the gap, are just sit there and go, huh. That's right. And the people who work really hard to close the gaps are like, oh my gosh, the gap is even bigger than I feared. This is awful. Game over. And I don't want to just put weights on sensitive people. And that's part of the reason why we do connection groups. There's, we have a place to process these things. But we're reading a passage of scripture today where Jesus talks to people who have, on, on like the Richter scale of gaps, they're at like a 10. Like zero to Mount Vesuvius, they're at the foot of the mountain. And my fear is that people with sensitive consciences will hear that and go, that's me, I knew it. I have this massive gap I cannot close. What I want to just, there's a, a biblical principle as we read the Bible, as we're about to read this passage. What you need to hear me say is that sometimes, sometimes the Bible lets us overhear conversations. We say it around here like this. The Bible isn't written to us, but it is written for us. John intentionally lets us hear Jesus confronting, bringing correction to people who have a huge gap in the values they genuinely hold and the way they're living. These people are religious leaders. They go by many different names. You can call them Pharisees, religious leaders. John's intended audience, the people he thought were reading his book, his ideal reader for the liter literature folks out there, John's ideal reader is not a Pharisee and a religious leader. It's spiritually curious people. It's people who are either on the way following Jesus, they're curious about Jesus. He's not thinking that people who have a huge gap and who don't care about that gap are going to read this. So if you're afraid that's you, take a breath. All right? Part of the reason I'm not worried, I'm worried, I know it's not you, is because people with huge gaps don't have anxiety about them. Sign you to sign your gap might be smaller than you think. And there is instruction in all of us overhearing Jesus bringing correction to people who have a large gap. Why? Because we all have gaps. We all leak. And Jesus' strategy for closing our gaps is intimacy. A lack of intimacy creates the gap, and intimacy closes the gap. 
He's not talking about a willpower Christianity of, ah, there's a gap. I got to work really hard. What's my like seven-step plan to not be mad at the people in my finance class? How do I, in, okay, I'm going to close the gap. I'm going to start right away by inviting that kid to lunch. I don't care what happens. Those are all fine things to do. That's not our starting place. Our starting place is being known and truly known. So there is a correction here. We're going to talk about how we, as disciples of Jesus, trying to live in integrity, how we navigate correction. But the foundation of this is intimacy. Intimacy closes the gap. That means then correction should be on a foundation of intimacy and knowledge. No drive-by corrections in the kingdom. Some of you have gotten those, I see. Yeah, that's not the way of Jesus. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about intimacy. This is one of the most intimate passages. Jesus makes a wild statement about his intimate relationship with the Father. Here's what he says. I and the Father are one. I know the Father. I'm deeply intimate. The lines of where I end and he begins, they're blurry. Not because we're the same person. No, 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 no. We're different people. God the Son, God the Father. But we're so intimately connected. And then you know who has that same type of relationship? My sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Our strategy for closing the gap is intimacy. That's nice. How do we do that? How does intimacy really close the gap? If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, starting in verse 22. How do we close the gap with intimacy? John chapter 10. Let's close the gap and shop at Old Navy. I like the gap. I think this shirt is the gap. Look at that. John chapter 10, verse 22. When you find it, please stand. And this is God's word. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews, the religious leaders, who were there gathered around him saying... How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I, I did tell you, but you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for his help. God, we have gaps. We have genuine beliefs, genuine loves, and they don't work their way out into our day. God, help us to see that the problem there is not effort, it's not planning. God, help us to see this through the lens of relationship, that your active presence is what we're invited to live into and through.
God, I pray we would grow more aware of your presence. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Intimacy closes the gap, eh? Well, I didn't read any of that in your passage, Craig. What are you talking about? Let's first look at the correction here. In, in verses 25 and 26, oh, well, we've got to start in verse 24. In the NIV, if you read it, the NIV is a fantastic translation. A lot of uh, scholars I really like were on that translation committee. It's a fantastic translation. But if you read verse 24 in the NIV, it can give the impression that spiritually curious people came to Jesus and they gathered around him. They're like, hey, if what you're telling us is true, would you please let us know? We're really struggling with this. That is not the vibe you get in other translations. This is one translation I really like. The religious leaders closed in around him. That's aggressive. They encircled him. Saying, how long will you hold us up? Right? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. What's happening here? They are feeling threatened and they are coming to Jesus with aggression. With aggression. These are not spiritually curious people. These are people who, by way of context, by way of reminder, a man who had been born blind, couldn't see his whole life, is healed. He goes into the temple. These folks kick him out. Why is he in the temple? Because he's ritually pure and he wants to be in God's presence. The temple represents God's presence. Heaven and earth meeting. We can dwell with God. Better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. This guy is affirming that by going to the temple. But he messes with their worldview. He threatens their status quo. So they kick him out. Then they find the guy that the blind man was talking about, Jesus, and they threaten him. These are not spiritually curious people. So Jesus tells a parable saying, I'm a good shepherd, you guys are bad shepherds. It's a correction that we are meant to overhear. What's happening? They're keeping someone from intimacy. Somebody wants to experience the presence of God. They go to temple. These people feel threatened, they kick him out. So this is all about intimacy right out of the gate. But furthermore, it's about integrity in intimacy. Look at verse 22 again. The context of this. Verse 22, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. The festival of dedication is still celebrated today. And that's the context through which we're supposed to read this story. We call it Hanukkah. Jesus is celebrating Hanukkah in this passage. What is Hanukkah? Hanukkah is a celebration of integrity. Now, hang on with me for a second. There was a ruler, 2nd century BC. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. You can tell by his name, he thought he was God. Antiochus Epiphanes was a tyrant, and he put his iron fist down on Jews in exile. He ruled over them. And he had deep contempt for them. He was wildly anti-Semitic. One of the things he did was he read their Torah and was like, okay, I know how to really mess with these folks. He took a pig and he sacrificed the pig in the holy place. It's called the abomination, abomination of desecrations. Antiochus did this. And it started a revolution. The Maccabean family said, mm -mm, no, sir. And they went to war and in a miraculous way, won. And so they rededicated the temple. That's about integrity. 
This was made for God. This was made to be where we experience God's presence. Someone said, no, that's not what we're doing here. We're going to bring something unclean into this. And now it's getting restored. It's whole. It's united. Hey, this is all about God's presence. That's the context Jesus is talking about. Integrity, unification, being united is so important for disciples of Jesus. Think about James. He was uh, one of Jesus' half-siblings. He wrote a letter to the New Testament church. And he says, hey, you can hear God's word, but if you, don't, if you hear it and then just walk away from it, you're double-minded. That's a lack of integrity. We want to be whole people. That's a sign of being healthy. That we really believe things. And then when we're confronted, we act out of those beliefs. That's the context that Jesus is bringing his correction into. This context would have also been understood through the lens of relationship. This passage is a fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. In the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 34, the prophet predicts that the bad shepherds in Israel are going to get corrected by God, who is a good shepherd. And what's happening here? Jesus comes and he corrects. He says, I'm a good shepherd. He corrects the bad shepherd. And he says this, I and the Father are one. Relationship, integrity is the foundation for which this is all happening. Even for the religious leaders who are operating as bad shepherds. Jesus speaks plainly because he's trying to establish relationship. And he does that by telling them the truth. Look at this. This may be a tough pill to swallow. And I, I just, a word on context. I, Jesus is not one of those like facts don't care about your feelings type folks. Jesus speaks plainly because there's, a, there's an invitation and he's trying to let people know where they stand. Look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus answered these aggressive people, I did tell you. I told you I'm the Messiah, but you don't believe me. The works I do in my Father's name, all the miracles I've done, the healing this blind man testify about me, but you don't believe. Why? Because you're not my sheep. He's saying this. The, the gap here is so wide because there's no relationship. That's the starting point. God doesn't come and say, hey, you want to know how to honor God? Stop smoking. Don't say these words. And probably should be in church on every Sunday. Well, and for really good measure, maybe Wednesday. I'm sure something's going on in your church on Wednesday night. That's how you can please me. No, he starts with relationship. Intimacy. The gap is there, as Jesus identifies in verse 26, because of a lack of relationship. The gap is not there because of willpower and effort. The gap is there because of a lack of intimacy. The challenge then for us is that when a gap gets pointed out, it can multiply and be received through like a shame filter. Ah, I have a gap because I'm the worst person ever. But listen to what Jesus is inviting everybody into, both the religious leaders and us. 1027. My sheep listen to my voice and I know them. Now, if Jesus didn't care about these religious leaders, he could have said nothing. He could have said, there's a lack of relationship here. Have a nice day. But even... 
to these these people were really like bad news bears in other parts of the gospel. In other parts of the gospel, it says that they put weights on people's shoulders that they themselves were not willing to carry. Spiritually abusive. But even in this, Jesus is inviting them. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. There's an invitation to intimacy. Even in the face of a correction. Now, correction is part of a healthy life. I don't believe we can be emotionally mature nor spiritually mature if we live our lives avoiding correction. Correction is a part of a healthy spiritual diet. It can be hard for us to hear that because we've experienced unhealthy correction. We've experienced that. There's the gap. There's the gap. Hey, Craig, did you know this was your gap? Still here. Okay. So how do we actually be people who like, yeah, okay, that's a thing, that's reality, but we want to be life-giving and helpful in correction. I think we've got to talk about the anatomy of a good correction. There's three parts of it. We can call it a, a relationship sandwich. Start with relationship and end with relationship. This is different from starting with a compliment. Have you ever talked to people who are like, I'm going to say something really harsh, but I'm going to say ten nice things, then that harsh thing. Have you ever been around someone like that? I'm just waiting to get, for them to get through the ten harsh things. Like, you're so great. I'm like, mm-hmm. Is it coming now? You're so funny. Uh-oh. <laughs> There's a lot. That's not what we're talking about. State the relationship. Let's just say, like, Luke and I. Luke. We have been friends. I remember that first day we met, I felt a kinship. Like, I'm like, man, this guy and I, I think we're cut from the same cloth. We've been friends. And we've been through the thick of it, man. We have been through the thick of it. We've been, you know, ups and downs, lefts and right, people throwing stuff at us. It's been incredible. You are a great friend. And I'd like to keep our relationship going. That is what I'm talking about. And be honest and genuine when we bring correction. Don't just be like, uh, we've been friends for years. Remind them, like, hey, we, this is a real friendship. I really value it. There's a real relationship here. And I'd love for that to continue. This is the meat of the sandwich. But I've got to talk about something hard. I've also found, if, you're, if we're going to bring correction, it can be helpful to say, I have to talk about something hard. That gives people, like, about a seven-second, like, buffer zone to be like, okay, something's coming. Rather than, like, and did you see the new Barbie? Crazy. Football season's over. I think you're a bad dad. <laughs> but I'm going to say something hard. It gives people an honor. I learned that from somebody who had to, this is true, they had to lay off like 200 people in their company. They just came in one after the other. It's a terrible job. And I had to be like, hey, I'm going to say something hard. Give people a buffer zone. The other thing, though, when we bring correction, it's so important that we do this. Name behaviors without judgment. Name behaviors without judgment. We cannot correct attitudes. It's so easy to misinterpret an attitude. You came in here all hot. You were so mad. I'm like, I was? I didn't think I was mad. Now we're just arguing about experiences. Talk about behaviors. Hey, I value our relationship. I want to keep going. I'm not going to assume motives. Jesus calls that judging in the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, do not judge, 
What he's saying there, I believe, is saying do not assume people's motives without asking. So we're going to name behaviors. We're not going to do it. We're not going to judge. Hey, when you came in here and were yelling, man, that's just not, that's not how we talk to each other. That's a behavior. When you said these words, that's not how we talk to each other. And then again, this is what makes it a sandwich. Reiterate hope for the relationship's future. This is hard for me to say. I'm saying because I love you and I want to be your friend. I want our relationship to survive this. I'm confident it can. And you're like, well, I just met this person. You can still do this. This is how it can look in here. We just met. You seem cool. I want to like you. You can do this. You don't have to do this with like close friends. You can do this with any level of relationship. Just has to be honest. If you don't want to like them, don't say that. <laughs> People can smell that. I know you think they can't, but we can. That's giving a life-giving correction. We see Jesus modeling this. He's identifying he's the good shepherd. In the context of Ezekiel, he's saying he's stepping into Israel's history because he's their God, they're his people. There's another part side of a correction, though. Sometimes we give correction. Sometimes we receive correction. I mean, not me. I'm pretty awesome, but I've heard others receive correction. That's a joke. So just ask the people I live with if I get correction. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but the author David Brooks talked about misunderstanding in conversation. In conversations with strangers, strangers only pick up 20%, it's estimated, of what each other's trying to say. Well, not me and my wife. In loving relationships, it's 36%. Why do I say that? If you receive a correction, start by restating the correction. You might not be understanding what the person's saying. It's, I mean, correction, it, nobody likes to do it. I don't care how, like, you know, if you're, like, familiar with the Enneagram, you're like, I'm an Enneagram 8, we love conflict. No, nobody likes doing this. Nobody likes correcting. And so, recognize that the person correcting you might be afraid. And things might come out sideways. So, hey, are you saying, and then restate back to them what you heard. Restate is not the same as repeating. Repeating is just regurgitating the information. Put it in your own words. Am I getting it? Next, we just receive that. Don't have to fight it. Just say, okay, that's a thing that got said. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that. While we're holding it, we can then take it to Jesus. Prayer, the way we talk about prayer can be super mystical, and I don't know if I'm praying right. Here's how we could look to take Jesus. Jesus, Luke just said, I regularly do this. I want to bring that to you. What does it feel like? I feel offended. I feel, and just wrestle. Just take it to Jesus. Once you do that, we can also take it to trusted others. And there's a very important adjective, a very important adjective in that little phrase. To trusted others. And share with them, hey, I just received a correction. Here's what was said. How do you experience me? That's why the word trusted is very important. Don't ask Tony at the office who's vying for your job. Don't ask people who have a history of gaslighting you. Take it to a trusted friend, someone who's safe, and be like, I just received this correction. What do you think? And listen. Next, lastly, lastly, identify a practice. 
Corrections I've received, like, man, sometimes in meetings, I feel like you get afraid and you just talk a lot. Okay, what's a practice I can do? I write slow to speak all over pieces of paper as visible reminders. When I want to talk, just write slow to speak. Now, if we start there, if you just start with that, you know what, you know what happens? You're a Pharisee. If you start with like, okay, I got a correction. I'm going I'm to identify. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it right away. Here's a way to fix it. I'm going to write this thing down. Mm-mm. There's, this is relationship through and through. You're communicating with the person you receive correction from. You're establishing that relationship. You're taking it to Jesus. You're taking it to others. That's why, we, that's why we believe in connection groups around here. You have a structure that has others in your life. That they're saying, hey, we wanna, we're disciples of Jesus. We're trying to grow too. And one week you can go, like, hey, here's something I'm wrestling with. What do you guys think? And then after that, after you kind of wrestle with it, we can identify practices. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we know that intimacy is waiting for us on the other side, we can sustain a lot. Listen to how Jesus describes his sheep. 28. I give them eternal life. And this is the strongest negation in the New Testament. They shall never perish. Ain't no way. Heck no. They won't be lost. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What words come to mind when you hear a sentence like that, when Jesus says that about his sheep? Safety? Care? Home? That's the place we're receiving correction from. The Father's hand. And no one, no correction, no gap, no one can, re- can pluck us from that hand. It's really interesting Jesus used the word plucked. He's talking to people who kicked someone out of the temple. No one can get my sheep out of my hand. Correction comes from a place of safety. That's why drive-by corrections have nothing to do with the way of Jesus. It's not integrity. I believe they stem from emotional immaturity. If we truly believe that intimacy is waiting for us on the other side, we can survive anything. I want to introduce you to a woman I met last week. I didn't really meet her. She was on a podcast. But her name was Ann Cossaber. I wish you could hear her voice. It's just, I could listen to her talk all day. She was a teacher in a small West Virginia community. People described her as the type of lady who made the world go round. She was a teacher. She was actively involved in her church. She was just a a go-getter in the community. One day, she was at the grocery store, and the grocer noticed her hand was shaking. And the grocer asked her, Hey, what's going on with your hand? Are you all right? And she said, Ah, I'm probably just burning out. I've just been working really hard. And she had A couple days later, though, she's walking in her mall and she collapses. She fell and had her first body tremor. She was soon diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Now, I am not a doctor, nor did I play one on TV, so I believe Parkinson's is the death of dopamine neurons in the part of our brain that controls bodily movement. Ballpark? Yeah. Her life changes, but her husband was a doctor. So she gets an appointment with a neurologist and gets put on a drug called Requip. And the symptoms go away. They had to raise her, her dosage because of damage done. So Requip, what it did was it, it, it flooded her body with dopamine. 
Seven to eight years go by. She gets invited with her friends to go to Vegas to watch the Final Four. And, you know, this lady grew up in a Baptist church. She never set foot in a casino, but everybody does this in Vegas. She finds herself gambling. She described herself when she first went to the slot machine and saw the cherries and the bars and the lemons. She said when they lined up, this little sweet lady, Anne, never done drugs in her life, said it's the closest thing to being high she could ever imagine. She went home, back to West Virginia. There's no casinos, so she would go to the dog tracks. The dog tracks were open from 7 a.m. to 3.30 a.m., and she was there the whole time. Sometimes she would go home, back to her computer, and play slots for free. No money. And then go right back to the, the dog park once it opened up. What's amazing is that Anne, sweet Anne, lost $300,000 over the course of a decade by way of quarters. That's staggering to think about. This lady who had never gambled in her life goes from zero to Mount Vesuvius. It got worse though. Her husband leaves her. She's wrestling with, with paying for her addiction. So she starts stealing. She started stealing quarters from her grandkids. Oh, just painful saying that. She started selling off family heirlooms. She was stealing furniture from her son. She was living on next to nothing. She described that she would eat peanut butter so she'd have more money for the slots. She was aware of the gap. She described herself as a lady who grew up in church and she imagined her dad who had passed away years ago looking down at her from heaven and just feeling an immense shame. I didn't raise you like this, she would hear. How could you do this? She's aware of a gap. What's her strategy for closing the gap? Well, thankfully, what Anne learned was that her gambling addiction was a result of the medication she was on. It messed with her dopamine and she just lost all filters for like when to start, when to stop. She gets off the medication and she's fine. Really quick, really quick recovery. But I'll never forget listening to that interview. She's sitting with her adult son. I don't know if any of you have ever had friends who are addicts. Friends who are addicts, it's very difficult to trust because they apologize and you think it's the last time and then you can't find your wallet. So her son is sitting with her. Her son's sitting with her and she just is, Anne is weeping. And she said, I don't know, I, I have no inheritance to leave you. I have just been a burden all of these years. I wanted to be life-giving to you, but I became this burden. And she's crying. And her son says to her, Mom, it's just stuff. I would give it all to get you back. Intimacy. If we know intimacy is waiting for us on the other side, we can face the pain of facing our gaps. This is the intimacy that waits for you. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's 
hand. That is a secure attachment. And if we believe that God says, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm on your side, I'm coming after you, what's a little hypocrisy? I have gaps. I wish I could sit you down and show you my gaps. Part of me is terrified if I did. You'd be like, I'm not going to church here. I want to be a patient dad. There's a little kid I live with who would say I struggle with patience. I want to be life-giving in the community. This is a true story that happened to me last week. I went to a coffee shop that shall remain anonymous. And I was waiting there for what felt like an eternity in line. And I had my bike helmet. And I'm waiting, and I'm wondering, are they building the coffee maker? Like, what? <laughs> I mean, I get artisanal, but are they painting the coffee while they serve it? Like, what is happening here? And I probably had the grumpiest look on my face. And then the barista says, hey, man, did you bike all the way from Compass? Hey! What a great shop you have. It's awesome. We all have gaps. And I'm persuaded the only thing that can help us close it is God's relational presence. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. Jesus, we want to be known by you. I pray for those of us in the room who feel the gap. God, the secrets we have. Please let us know that these secrets don't keep us from you. That no one is able to snatch us from your hand. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.